Welcome to Life's Tough. You can be tougher. I'm Dustin Plantold, your host. This is a show about life. It's about stories. It's about the people we meet and the people they meet along the way. You know, it's interesting when you think about a story. Don't they impact you? Don't they make a difference? Well, to the people that live their own lives, your own story, well, it's the basis for a book. It's the basis for a movie. It's actually the basis for a TV series. And if you don't believe me, go on Netflix. Look it up. Someone else out there has gone through something similar or something more severe, something more traumatic. Our guest today is Mel Allen. Mel Allen is a New England institution. He wrote his first story for Yankee Magazine, the official publication of the region in 1977, and has been there ever since. You know, Mel, he had losses. Here's a man who's 74 years old. Can you imagine what he's seen in his own life? He's lost both his parents. He lost his brother at age 29, his sister at age 58, and even his first wife. Yet his story, his losses, according to him, they pale in comparison to the stories about those he has written about in his magazine, Yankee Magazine. And he uses their stories of strength and resilience to keep going and doing good. In his words, I am certain that my desire to write about these people were fueled by my personal experiences. So many of my stories have been about people faced with seemingly impossible obstacles and through perseverance and in no small measure courage, they found a way to push through. Today, we're going to be talking to Mel about the people he's met, what made them strong, where they found their fuel, why they didn't quit, or at times when they were about to give up, to climb down, to end it, They found their strength to keep going. Mel, welcome to Life's Tough. Today, Mel Allen is tougher. Dustin, I'm really glad to be here. You know, lots going on in this world, Mel. And and you're like a young man. You're you're 74. You've seen quite a a lot in your days, have you not? Dustin, um, I've, I've seen a lot in my days, but I've never lived through what all of us in this country and actually in this world are living through um, right now. I've been writing a, uh, a column for, for the web. It's called Letter from Dublin. Um, and it's all, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to reach out to people to say that you can still find, find some joy when you observe small things like, such as signs for the high school graduation. And, and I do this every, um, every two weeks. But what I've never, what I've never lived through um, is the uncertainty that I know that people feel that can we get through? Can we get through? And I think that I think that if there's a lesson in all this. When we look back on this year, it's going to be how many of us actually did. Isn't that the case? You know, there there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of uncertainty. Um, politics sure, sure don't help. It, it doesn't create unity. It divides us even more. But you've spent the majority of your career around something that. I would say unites us or unites those of us that, that enjoy sports. I mean, what was it about sports for you that, that attracted you? Were you a professional athlete or tell us your story? No, no it's, 
No, I mean, you know, picture, um, I mean, I, I rooted for the worst possible teams in sports. I grew up in um, outside of Philadelphia in a little town called Westchester, Pennsylvania. And my first sports team, Dustin, was the Philadelphia Athletics, who were always there. They were the perennial last place team. And I could of, of those treasured memories. I had this little blue Philadelphia Athletics jacket. But um, my dad, my dad would come home from work and we would go to the front yard for, for the earliest time I can remember, six, seven years old. We'd play catch, no different than all across America. You know, this is before TV actually. We didn't have our first TV until I was probably 10, 12 years old. We just played sports and I had a I had a football. I'd go to this little park, I'd throw the football to my against trees and all and I'd throw balls against uh, baseballs against the side of the house. I love sports and I read about sports. I, if, if your listeners remember that the great writer John R. Tunis, T-U-N-I-S, he wrote this whole series of young adult um, books. And there's always about there was a Brooklyn Dodgers mostly, and they were um, they were always the underdogs. They were never supposed to win the pennant. They had to endure all kinds of things, um, you know, injuries and losses and, and team friction. And they always somehow at the end of it managed to stay as a team. But I would say that I wanted to be a professional baseball player. What can I say? And uh, I was not good enough. I got I played up until through college, up through, through my freshman year. And after that, I threw my love of sports into um, into writing and finding other people who played better than me, but I didn't just write about sports. I wrote about people and people's stories. And, that, and you understand that. Well yeah. Pe people are truly fascinating, yeah. but let's take a step back. I want to know, what did your dad do? You said your dad would go to work. What was your, what was your well, dad's life? My, my dad, um, my dad was a first generation, uh, uh, immigrant. Um, his dad, his dad came from Russia. His mom came from Russia. Um, my dad, my dad was, um, the first one in his family to ever go to college. It was two years. He went to, uh, Temple University Dental School. It was a two-year program then, and he was became an itinerant dentist, going to all the different coal mining towns throughout Pennsylvania, towns like Hazleton, things like that. And he would, they would, he was a handsome man, and he always told me that um, the company that hired him wanted him to go to these coal mining towns, and they would set him up for like a few months at a time because he was a good-looking guy, and so the people would come to him. And then he went into World War II. Became, he was a, a captain in, in the army. On a, he was the dentist, the, the army dentist, Puerto Rico, Jamaica. He met my mom on um, army base in Jamaica. I um, mean, he was on the army base. She was uh, she would, had been raised in Jamaica. Um, her father had come from England, and they got married. They had my 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 sister on the army base. Moved back to Pennsylvania, and I was born a year later. But he was a he was you, you know the character in. Um, and to kill a mockingbird, uh, the lawyer, you know, um, Atticus Finch. My dad was sort of like the Atticus Finch of the, of the town as a dentist. He took care of all the, all the poor people, frankly, and many of whom could never pay him. And so we would, I'd wake up in the morning and look outside, and there'd be huge mounds of mushroom soil would be delivered, or, or sacks of eggs, or or meat from some farmer, because uh, rather than pay, they would they would give him stuff that they could actually produce. Um, he's, he never charged more than $5 a filling. Um, my mom once told me he never made more than $20,000 a year. So he was not the kind of dentist that you think of today. He was a one-man show. He had no hygienist. He answered the phone. He, he made the false teeth. He did, every, he did everything. And he was, he was born in 1907, so he was, a, he was a throwback. You know what's interesting? Most people don't know their story. They don't know his story, their dad's her story, their mom, but you seem to be able to, to listen 
Is this something that you've always been able to do? Was it the younger years you didn't care? Like, how did you learn more? Give advice to our audience for people that, quite frankly, they can't even tell you half the stuff that you just spit out about yours like it was off the top of your tongue. Well, Dustin, my dad was actually a, a reticent man, but it's as simple as being able to say, I'd love to know, I'd love to know your story. I mean, I've always, I mean, all these years later, I've been I've been in the, the journalism business now for um, half a century, and you know, just asking people to tell their story. I teach I teach writing as well, and one of the one of the segments in my course is simply called listening, and we just talk about how you ask questions to people, but then you have to just be quiet and let them tell you their story. And my experience has been people are not used to people listening to them. I don't mean just being with them, looking at their phone. I mean, listening to them. And um, we talk about that. And people want to tell their stories if you ask, if they know that you're really interested. It's, it's really not that, it's really not that complicated. I don't think you, you just tell them, I'd love to know about this. I'd like to know where my grandfather came from. My grandfather on my mother's side um, was orphaned, um, I believe at 16. He, um, he he went on a like a like a freighter. He he was a like a stowaway. He was born in Damascus, uh, Syria, um, and he was living in Jerusalem as a um, as 16 year old boy. He took a freighter to South America. He he pedaled. He had a donkey and he put uh, rags and cloth on his donkey. These are stories that aren't that unusual of that for that time. And he went into the mountains um, of Colombia and Panama and Jamaica, and he eventually built up a textile business. But those are the stories. How can you not want to hear those stories? I mean, they're, they're fascinating. You know, they, we said in the beginning of the show, which you're going to hear, it's pretty awesome, that, that everyone's story, and their, especially their family story, is the basis for a movie. It's the basis for a book. That when you dig into your own family history, what you learn is these people were tough. They, they didn't quit. They didn't give up. They didn't throw in the towel. If they did, you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't have made it here. That your family, you came from a, you came from a family, not literally in the fighting list, but our fists up, but a family of fighters that wouldn't quit. Do you think that was this genetic? Did, was it passed down to you to be as tough? I mean, you're in a space and in an industry that it's tough, that not everybody is going to be a top editor. How did you become that? Well, there's, 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 a, there's a lot to unfold in that question. That's a many-layered question, and, and it's a good one. So I'm going to – I'll tell you like a, a, little, um, a, a, little, a little story here. When I was eight years old, um, my sister was nine. She was a year older than me. Um, my parents had another child, my little brother, David. I was eight years old, and he was born with a, um, a really serious uh, genetic disease that nobody actually recognized at the time. And um, he wasn't growing. He wasn't. He wasn't developing. And uh, my mother's uh, sister came to for a visit, and she had a son born exactly the same within a, two weeks of my brother. And there was a time they could see the difference was so sharp. And they finally took my brother, maybe like six, seven months old, took him to a hospital to be tested, and it turned out he had something called von Gerke's disease, uh, glycogen storage disease. And so for the for his whole life, like when he was fourteen, he looked like he was like five. Um, and he, he bled a lot. And um, for my brother to get a cold could be life-threatening. So from the time I was eight, um, I lived in a home where there was always just above the surface, 
was a sense of like impending tragedy could happen. So I saw my father staying up all night. And because he was a dentist, he, you know, when you extract teeth, you, um, you have to pack those teeth. He knew how to stop bleeding, but there were times he could not stop my brother. My brother would have these nosebleeds, which is part of this, of this illness. Um, and he would, and my brother would have to be rushed to the hospital for transfusions. This was all my entire growing up from, from eight on, but I saw my father stay up all night in the morning, have his cup of coffee, then go in and work and work on his patients, come back. And then sometimes my brother would have um, these nosebleeds for three, four days in a row and so on and so forth. Um, he had to be airlifted once out of, out of Jamaica when we'd sometimes go in the summer. Um, and I saw my father never, I, I, I swear, I never saw my father complain. I never saw my father say, I can't do this anymore. And um, that was, if, if there's such a thing as, as, as like somebody who you model yourself after, it was, it was my dad who, Paid a heavy price. He he got very very sick when he was in his um his sixties. He had to have part of his stomach removed um, because of, of the stress, and he never talked about it. And then um, my dad, an anecdote I always have have held in my head. He worked the, the day he retired, Dustin. He walked down. He had he had, like, he had like twenty steps to his office. He walked down the stairs, put the key in the door turn the key and the key broke off in the door. I, I don't know what that symbolizes, but it symbolizes something to me that somehow the universe said, okay, you've done, you've done enough. And then he, like so many other people, he retired, moved away, um, died two years later. So I've, that's a lesson to me is you don't take, you don't take any days for granted. And I don't think, I doubt you do as well, knowing what I know of your story. You know, it, it's, it's powerful, isn't it? When you dig in to find how you got here and, and your dad and what he went through that many people around the world that have family members that they see as being tough, that, that they didn't break, that they didn't complain. Many times it's easy to say, well, that person may lack empathy or may lack sympathy where it's actually the other side of it, that your dad had empathy for the people he met. He, he understood what they were going through and he knew that he must be a rock for them. That as a, that he couldn't break, that, that if he broke, what would they have? Who could they rely on? That to me shows courage that he put them first. Yeah, that's, 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 that's what you well put. In fact, this, even the way you said that, one of the stories I remember, it's funny how we remember stories from our young years. It was, I told you I used to read all this young adult fiction about sports. It was called The Man Who Would Not Break. And that was, um, I still remember the story like, like yesterday. It was, they were, it was a high school football team. They're going up against the powerhouse and the powerhouse team had this, think of, um, think of like Larry Zonka. They had like a Larry Zonka figure, this, this big guy who no one could ever tackle. And uh, the, the, the coach told this guy who was like a substitute, actually, you, uh, you have to be the one to stop him. And how this, this player, whose name I forget, had to, had to somehow take all that fear and internalize it. And then the first time he tackled this player, I remember the description of this vibration going through his body, but he would always help this other guy up, this guy who could not be stopped. He always would help him up. And finally, there was the other guy who broke because he, no one had ever been able to tackle him before. But those, those are the those are the stories that stay with us. And it's why when I got into this, um, to the writing business, one of the first stories I ever wrote, I was probably 1976, I think. A young boy, Dustin, had disappeared from the family campground. His name was Kurt Newton. Um, I believe it was 1975, and they had gone to northern Maine to go camping. His parents, they were young parents, are in their 30s. 
Um, Kurt had a, had, a, had, a, had a sister named Kimberly, who I believe was two years older than he was. So the dad, his name was Ron Newton. He went out to get firewood. He drove off in his truck. The mom was hanging laundry. If you've ever been camping, you know, sometimes you go for a week, you string a line up between trees and you hang your clothes up and so on. And Kurt got on his tricycle and pedaled away. He was never seen again, oh. never seen again. And the, the dad came back. The mother said, where's Kurt? Didn't he go with you? Said no. Hmm. It was the largest manhunt in the history of Maine. Thousands of people poured into the, into the forest, into the wilderness. The mother got these very these airplanes to be dispatched, these Air Force planes from Florida that had those heat sensors, you know. Every I mean, it was the largest search in the history of Maine. Not a trace was found. The story that I went to tell, and I was only in my, I believe I was in my late 20s at this time. Um, the family agreed to see me because they thought that obviously publicity could only help because they they became convinced that somehow improbably and probably as it could be, he was snatched because how would you not have seen some, some sign of, of, of this young child? And so they wanted to start, but what I was fascinated with, how do you keep going? They were in their thirties. They had never, they had no idea what, and yet, and what they did, Dustin, they, they, the whole town of Manchester, Maine gathered in the firehouse and this is before the internet, of course, so that everything had to be done manually. They got phone books from every school district in America. Think of, think of the, just think of the scale of that. Thousands of these phone books. And they sent out Kurt's picture to every school district in America. And then they sent it to Canada. So this was an entire community and this family who said, we are not going to quit. This is, this, we are going to show our child that there's nothing, nothing is too big for us to overcome. And, you know, you want to have the end of that story be they found him and they never did, but that doesn't mean that that effort wasn't heroic. And that was one of the first stories, um, one of the first stories I ever, I ever wrote. <clears throat> and I should add that I became a fourth grade teacher. Um, I was, I went into the Peace Corps um, right from college. And I became a fourth grade teacher when I came back. I had no experience teaching kids, none, but something in me. And I, you know, when I'm, when I end up talking, I don't talk about my brother very often, but when, when we start talking about my brother, I realized that my, and I became a great fourth grade teacher. I don't mind saying that. Um, the parents wanted their kids in my class it was because I wanted, I wanted those kids to have the best experience in that classroom possible. And so I would, I had one, one child who was a foster child, actually, Dustin. Um, and he came into my class partway through the year, didn't know anybody. I remember the knock on the door and he walked into the, cl the class and I said, his name, said his name was Farron. I said, Farron, write your name on the board so we can all see it. And he stood there, not moving, not saying a word. And only a few minutes after did I realize he didn't know how to write his name. And so for that whole rest of the year, I wrote stories for him. Farron, Farron goes to the North Pole with Robert E. Peary. Farron was a, was a lone survivor at the battle of, um, or the, you know, Custer's last stand, you know, Farron, uh, Farron breaks Babe Ruth's uh, record, all that kind of, so Farron, even though he, I can't say he learned to read, he learned that he could read those stories. So he was able to join because he, he memorized them. Obviously he was bright, but, um, his, his upbringing had been so chaotic that, that normal things had not happened for him. But after, um, 
after teaching um, those kids for a couple of years, I then wrote a story about teaching and that got the attention of an editor at the, um, at the main Sunday Telegram who then offered me a regular writing thing to write a 3000 word story every couple of weeks. And that all led to everything. So that's how um, the way these stories unspool is it starts with, I could say it started with seeing my brother not be able to have a childhood the way we think a childhood never could play baseball, never could go bike riding, never could go sledding, all those kind of things. Seeing, wanting to bring that to other kids, writing about teaching. Somebody sees what I wrote, wants me to write other stories. I'm drawn to stories like this story I just told you about Kurt Newton. I wrote that for the main Sunday telegram. When I finally went to, to see the editor at Yankee a couple years later, what have you written? I show him those stories. One of those stories was the Kurt Newton story. This is pretty good. He says, I'd like you to write for us. And then all that goes from there. And I pass that on to young to writers who try to write for, um, for Yankee magazine. What a story. I mean, that is just a small amount of what you've gone through. My cousin, I never got to interview him. It's Ken Kesey. He wrote a book that I'm sure uh, you're no, familiar I, with. No, I, I read I read Ken Kesey when I was in the Peace Corps, frankly, back so, in, the, in the late 60s. Yeah. Being that I never got to interview my cousin to, to ask him, tell me what goes through a writer's head. And as a wannabe writer, that instead of allowing, I'm going to call it trauma. I mean, how traumatic. You're a little boy and you're not being placed first in your family. That your brother is getting the attention of the family. Your brother Everything is is revolving around him, his nosebleeds, that instead of you becoming hard, instead of you getting to a place where you become truly desensitized, you chose to continue to elevate others as you elevated your brother in the home, as you've elevated some of the world's greatest, biggest names from Ted Williams to this family that, that they lost their child, that you elevated them. You put them up there to say, I will give everything I have that... You may not be a dentist, but you are a doctor. You're, you're someone who has been reaching in and touching hearts around the world. That, And I believe you, you don't save lives, you extend them. That through your stories, you're letting these people's lives continue and you're extending their lives to the next generation. So where do things go from here? Because you come from a generation, Mel, that quite frankly is dying. There are not many left. You're, I like to refer to as remember the last of the Mohicans that you're part of this group <laughs> that you're one of the last that here's your dad. Your dad was World War II. Your dad was alive when Titanic sank. That that no, my, that no, group no, is that we are seeing this shift, and then the millennials that many of them and I can't speak for every single millennial on the planet. I can only talk for myself that we don't know how to listen. But you found a way to do it. You found a way to not just listen, but then to say, aha, I got it. And then you could go out and find your passion. So talk about that. Where did you find your passion? Was this easy for you? Was writing your thing? You know, you know I, I think, I think, I think the, the thing was hearing stories. I have to say, you know, and the way that, the way that you put stories and you give them life you know, it used to be the oral tradition. Well, we don't live in the oral tradition. Though you were actually trying to bring that back a little bit just just on this podcast. So good for you. And um, but writing stories, the pleasure I would get from actually hearing those, the, the trust that people would would, would put in you. Um, let me let me just give you. Um, I give it another example. Grace Corrigan was the mother of Krista McAuliffe. 
And Grace Corrigan is one of those famous photographs of our time when the camera is focused on her face when the challenger uh, takes off. And then you see her face going from this pride and this almost uh, like luminous to this horror just suddenly start spreading on her face when she sees that um, the challenger has blown up though she's not quite sure what you know what actually happened so i went to see grace on the 25th anniversary of the challenger explosion and i had the same kind of impulse to want to know from years years earlier when i saw the family about the young child is how do you continue how do you how do you keep it? How do you inspire other people? Because that that she had devoted her life from the time of her daughter's uh, death in the, in in the Challenger to carrying on her her daughter's mission. In fact, we titled this story uh, "Krista's Messenger," and right almost immediately after she started going to schools, and because Krista's whole message was teaching really matters, teachers really matter. That's why being the first teacher in space meant so much to her. So Grace um, gave the the, uh, the graduation speech at the college where um, her daughter was supposed to have, have, have taught, uh, given the speech. Grace wrote a book about her daughter. Grace went to all the different space camps, you know, how all these kids in, in, uh, in junior high, they go to something called space camp. They would always find Grace Corrigan at space camp talking to them. And just her telling me, basically what she said is, I had no choice. I had to carry on that, that mission. And so I don't know if, frankly, Dustin, if I ever said to myself, I have a choice now. I could either go into business and be, you know, whatever. I could a hedge fund manager or whatever, or I could just, I didn't, I never thought of it as a choice. I just wanted to write and tell stories about people. And, and now that all these last, you know, many years, I'm not just writing stories, but I help other people write their stories as well. And, um, one that I think would resonate with you. I, I teach in a an MFA creative writing program at a place called Bay Path University in Longmeadow, Massachusetts. And these these are almost all adults, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, even a few in their 60s. And they come into this program because they have a story that they feel that they need help to tell. And almost with few exceptions, these are personal memoirs. So I'll give you one example. A young woman... I think she's in her 40s. She'd already published several science books for um, middle school children. And in the course of the class, it was, called, it was called Writing Your Personal Essay. It came out that when she was five years old, her father in a drunken rage stabbed her mother to death. Mm. And I know that you can identify with that um, from your own personal story. And she was carried out of the house by the police and put in a uh, one of the policemen's uh, uh, wives took care of her until she found another home with her. Actually, her mother her mother was only in her early twenties. I think she was twenty two, until her mother's sister raised her. And what this young woman told me, her name was Lori Burns. She told me that she 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 gravitated towards science, and she never really questioned why. And in the course of the of the course writing these essays, she realized that science was, gave her something very concrete. You do A and you do B and it will lead to C. It was not, un, not uncertainty. There's nothing convulsive about that. But in this program, in this master's program, she's, her thesis 
became her personal story. That was called The Science of Me. And in that, she told for the first time the story of this trauma that happened to her. And when I can be part of those people writing those stories, and that's so life-affirming, um, who can have who can have a better mission than that, actually, basically? And that's that's what, to me, being an editor, a lot of people, times editors will say, well, my job is to say no to people. And make No, my job is to help people tell their stories the best that they can. And that's, that's how I define that. That's I, to say it's beautiful is an understatement for somebody that is new to the world of interviewing. You, you beat me by a couple decades. I feel that I'm a fiduciary. I'm a fiduciary to the story that if I'm going to share their story, that I have to do it in a judgment-free way, that the facts and to not, in my own head, make my own conclusions. Like It's the indoctrination of where you're born is, is what you're going to believe or the story that somebody tells you going in you, you asked me before the show began of, you know, having you on and, and uh, you know, reading through your bio. And the thing that I appreciate about you, Mel, and we've had a lot of people on this show, is that trust is earned. You have earned the trust of some of the biggest names in the world, people that trusted you with their brand. You know, I don't take that lightly, that when someone comes on to our show, I'm trusting them with the brand that myself and my team and I talk about my co-founder. My co-founder was my sister. You know, she died in thir- at the age of 33 from an overdose that, to me, she started the, this for me of life's tough. She would remind me that as a little boy, that life's tough, but you can be tougher, Dustin. You don't have to quit. You don't have to give up. And that choices, especially choices that are detrimental, that, that you still have a decision to make along the way, what you're going to do with it and how your legacy, and I choose to use her legacy of a positive way to help others to say that if you come from a family of addictions, to stay away from those things that pulled your family down, and you came from a family of givers to say it is better to give than it is to receive. It is better to give than to take. We live in a generation today that takes. They don't give. You take the time to listen. You take hours, hundreds of hours, thousands of hours over and over every single year to dive into a story, to figure out who the person really is to, to look beyond the fame, to look beyond the, to look beyond the, what is seen and find the unseen. How do you see what others cannot mail? How do you look in and find the truth when sometimes it can be clouded? Boy, that's, um, you don't ask, you don't ask simple questions, Dustin, and good for you. You know, that's you, um, I think you keep with this, keep with this because you have a, you have a natural instinct and it's your curiosity. I mean, you want to know the, the answers to these. <clears throat> the, the, the best way I know to answer that is I am really curious and it might be, you know, deep, deep curiosity from when I was a little boy, who knows, you know, there's a part of me that probably has always wondered, could I have done what my brother did could I have been the small, I mean, you know, think of, think of yourself being 14. He had the mind of a 14. He had the mind of a 15, but he looked like he was six, looked like he was seven. Um, he, his belly, because he had, the, it was a liver called liver glycogen storage disease, um, glycogen stored in his liver. So it looked like he had this huge beach ball coming out of his little body. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it was just his, his liver was enlarged and people would stare, you know, mm-hmm. Maybe it was me at some point 
not even knowing what I'm, what I'm, what I'm internalizing is could I have done what he did? And it's not unlike your sister, Dustin, my, my brother ended up taking his life at age 29. Um, you know, he went as far as he could. And when he was a young, when he was a young child, he was very precocious and the, the local college even had him uh, come to the, um, an, ed- an education class where people wanted to be teachers because he, the, the teacher wanted the students, um, the future teachers to understand that they could have to look past how a person looked because he, he, he could read at such an early age and he had this vocabulary and all these kind of things. But then when you got older, 20, 21, 24, 25, 26, 27, and um, he wanted to be a writer. And I have, I have a, um, I have a trunk that I keep in a storage unit. It's all his plays that he wrote play after play after play, but he never knew how to actually write plays. If that makes sense. Um, he would write his emotions and his characters. It would, it would always be somebody named Shorty, for example. Okay. There would always be somebody. And I was the brother who left. I mean, it was one of his plays was called brothers and you know, I left, I, I went to the Peace Corps. I could, I, I went to South America. So I would, I would have done that when he was 14. I moved to Maine, you know, I didn't come back to live in, in this little Westchester town, um, little town, Pennsylvania, where, and I thought about that along many, many times, you know, but I, I did that because I felt that I needed to kind of make my own way that if I had stayed, I st- would have always been uh, David's bigger brother. And there was a family dynamic that you can imagine that you kind of picked up on. Um, you said, you know, the family dynamic had to had to focus on my brother. So, and so, so let's, let's talk about that. I mean, th- this is a show where we talk about the things that, that keep us up. We talk about the things that, that take our peace away. Where were you when you got the call that your brother had died? Well, that's... that's um, so my brother and I never had a fight except one time the year before he died. Um, I had gone, I, I, he lived in Florida with my parents in their, in their, in their, um, in their condo. And then my dad had died. And so it was just my mother and my brother. And this is, this would be 1983 because he was, um, so the fight we had was 1982. Um, we had gone to see E.T., and uh, there's something about the movie E.T. that must have really struck him very deeply. Um, you know, the, 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 the young girl wanted to kind of uh, take care of this little, this little creature and the, and, and the danger that the creature was in and so on and so forth. But, but that night, we, I was taking my brother and my wife. We were going out to dinner or something like that. And he said something like I wouldn't understand. Uh, he and my mother had had a fight and he and my mother always had fights. Cause now he's 28 years old and he's living with his mother. So you can, and he knew he was dependent on her because he had never really out. He'd never become truly independent Dustin. And he said something like you, you something like you, you just left, you just left and you just, you know, didn't care about us or something like that. And, I, and something snapped in me. For that one time in my life, because I'm people know I'm, I'm very mild mannered, and I grabbed his he I grabbed his T-shirt and I ripped it, and he, that and then I left the next day, and he, we went almost a whole year without um, seeing each other. I never saw him again actually, 
And only at the last month or two, would he, I would write him these letters. He'd never write back. I want to talk to you. He never talked to me, etc. And then um, he called me two or three days, or I called him before he died. This was in, he died on September 5th. Um, two or three days, would, would I, was I coming down? And I said, well, I'm going on this canoe trip. I had a canoe wilderness story to write with this guy who was going to do this wild river in Quebec. And I was supposed to go that day. Now, you have to understand, my brother had never spent a single night alone in his life. On the night of September 4th to into the 5th, my mother went and stayed with her sister in Hollywood, Florida. The one night my brother was left alone. And apparently he had been planning this for some time. The one physical act that he had been able to do, and he was so proud of it. And my favorite photograph of my brother is my brother coming out of uh, out of the water. He he learned to go scuba diving and he joined a scuba club. And he was, think of it now, you're underwater, you're weightless. You, you have a snorkel, I mean, you have a mask on, you have a tank on, you look as normal as you will have ever have looked in your life. And this is where he found his true joy. I would say my brother was without joy for the last five, six, seven years of his life, but this brought him true joy. And on the last night of his life, he wrote a play. And the last line of his play was something like, I've had it with this life, and I have that play. And then he killed himself through his scuba stuff. He, st he stuck the scuba mask on his face and connected it to the, uh, to the car like carbon dioxide tank, something of that sort. But he just, and my mother walked in, she saw him, she called me hysterical. Uh, I was about to go off on this canoe trip. That's a hard story to tell. I kept, I kept his scuba tank and that mask for years. And then I joined a men's group and in a ceremony, they had me burn this stuff, you know, because I was carrying this around. And I don't think it's an accident and I've, I've only said, told this once, and I said it uh, this year to my write, this writing group that I teach, because I, <clears throat> I said one of the assignments was each of you interview yourself. What questions will let somebody know who you are on a deeper level? So they had to, and I said, okay, now ask me questions. And then one of them asked about my becoming a teacher. And I told this story because I, if my brother had somehow been able to overcome the rejections of his plays being rejected over and over, maybe he would not have done, but he lost his hope. And so I make it a point that even when I reject people's writing, I try to point out what maybe they could try it again, what, or what would make this better. And I never, I never do one of these simple rejection letters, you know, sorry, it doesn't fit our needs. And he got too many of those. Um, so that, that's, that's the story that that's, that becomes in you. And then you live your life according to that story, even if you're not aware of it. I think a lot of us, Dustin, are not aware of the stories that carry us through life. You know, well said. And you know, you do treat today like it is your last day. And there, there's no time to hate, and there's no time to denigrate. You know, why? Just look at each other and realize that the person who, even if you don't know that person, they are they are going through the same feelings that you're having it's not like we are two species because we live in a red state or a blue state we're the same species you if you're if your sister happens to be a nurse she is facing 
trauma every single day. It doesn't matter if you're in Louisiana or if you're in New Hampshire. You know, we are we are all in this together. And somehow, I I don't know, I, I don't I don't know if 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 there's a single if there's a single thing anybody can hear, if there's a single thing anybody can write that can make a difference. I will I do know that my little corner of life that I can make a difference with in this little column I do called Letter from Dublin. I get these emails from people. And these are simple columns. These are these are not complicated. I'm writing about seeing things outside and what it's like to rake leaves and how I try to make it into a metaphor and seeing the one last apple on an apple tree. Why has that one still holding on to the tree? I get these um, emails from people saying it means so much to me that you are connecting with me. I'm getting these from all over, and I'm thinking. So people are people are hungry to be unified. And I think, you know, I say unified just mean feeling the connection. They don't know me. They just read these little words, but they feel like they know me because I'm writing about things that they can identify with. And I do wish, I do wish I had this deep wisdom, this universal wisdom that I could say, if only we could do this and then do that and, and paint by numbers and follow these, this, this, this little trail, you know, that we could all be, um, get out of get out of this thing. I don't, I don't know how that works except for shows like this, you know, you're, you're spreading the word the best you can, you know, and my little, um, the stories that I choose for my magazine. Um, I, I talked to Todd Balf yesterday and Todd Balf is one of the great, to me, one of the great stories of perseverance that I know. Um, Todd was a great adventurer and he, he was a, editor at Outside Magazine. He wrote three books all about adventure. He would go to the Amazon. He would go, you know, he rode his bike up Mount Washington. I mean, he, the stories he wrote for me were always about physical stamina. And he was a little guy, but he had this great will. And then he had a spinal cancer, very rare, one of only 300 a year in the country. So he's one in a million. The spinal cancer during the operation which was two eight-hour operations. They removed the cancer, but his spinal cord was damaged, so he was partially paralyzed. Instead of instead of saying my life as an adventurer is is over, he and I would talk because I've known him for many years, and I, and he always said that my encouraging him to write about this gave him the the the, the, the hope that he could actually make something of of this through writing. Then he had a stroke. On a second opera, just several years ago, to repair the damage to the rods that were in his, were there in his back, he just recently, and we, we published a story in Yankee about his journey, and then we're in the um, in the upcoming May issue, we have a little column by him about how he's made. He has a special bicycle because he's a huge bicyclist. He's flat on his back, where only his head stick, and he, he pedals with his hands, and he's going an all off trail, everything, and people are looking at him. But every time he does this, he's saying, I am alive. I'm still Todd Balf. I'm still an adventurer. I'm just in a different in a different place. And he wrote a book called Complications. And and, and he, he, he just, I told him I was going on your show, Dustin. And um, I said, I wanted to let people know that if they find complications, they're going to see one of the great stories of a person of resilience um, that I know. And that is those people are all around us. It doesn't matter if they're red state, blue state, if they wear a mask or they don't wear a mask, but there's still people who have great stories. They sure do. And where do we learn more about you, Mel? Where can we find your work? 
Well, I um, Yankee Yankee. I, I write in Yankee Magazine. It's uh, NewEngland.com is our website, and if they if they just put in letter from Dublin Yankee on on their you know on their browser, they're going to see my column that starts it starts with the most recent and it goes all the way down to March when I when it began, and it was just simply try to connect with people any wherever they are with the simple things in life, saying that we are all in this together. Thank you for sharing your story. Life's tough. Mel's brother was tougher. Thanks again, Mel. Thank you, Dustin. Thank you, Mel, for sharing your story. It takes courage to open up. It takes courage to tell others the things we've gone through, but not in a way to become a volunteer victim. No, in a way to connect. You know, Mel connected with me today, and I hope he connected with you. He told you the things that, quite frankly, held him back, that he didn't get to say goodbye to his brother, that he had trauma, that he experienced pain, but he also experienced love and happiness and joy, and that all of these emotions, all of these moments, well, they got him to where he was today, and where he is today is a man that is a role model for the next generation. And they say to speak in such a way that others love to listen to you. You know, as a writer, that's a challenge. How do you write in a way that others want to listen, that others want to hear what you have to say? It starts with listening. You know, Mel has found this unique way in listening to others in such a way that others love to speak to him. I challenge you, are you listening or do you all do, you do all the talking? When you're home with your family or your friends, or you're online, or with your colleagues, or wherever you are in the world, are you doing all the talking? Or are you doing the listening? I challenge you to listen. And you would find that through others' stories, through others, you'll learn more about yourself. Maybe in that journey, you'll learn to have empathy. Maybe in that journey, you'll learn to have humility. All the things that Mel He's taken away from his journey. I challenge you, what relationship out there needs to be mended today? That today is in front of you. We said on the show to treat every day at work like it's your first and every day with your family. And I'll add your friends like it's your last. What relationships do you need to mend? What relationships should come back? And what relationships should you let go? This show is called Life's Tough. You can be tougher. It starts with you. And many times it starts with you listening. We bring people on the show to talk about their lives, to talk about the things that they went through, the good and the bad, that you don't connect on your strengths. You connect on your weaknesses. Who out there right now in your circle needs you more than ever, needs you to say, I'm sorry, needs you to reach out that olive branch that it starts with you. The only person and the only thing you will ever be able to control in life is yourself. How do you communicate? How do you come across? Are you somebody that others want to talk to? Are you somebody that understands what they're going through? It is easy to judge others, yet if you were to spend one day in their shoes, you'd understand what they went through. And my guess is you'd probably respond a little differently. Life's tough. You can't be tougher. Don't forget that. See you guys soon.